You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. The topic of forgiveness is an uncomfortable one for many, many people. And I think the reason for that is because it's hard to go through life without being hurt, even hurt very deeply. And even just hearing the word forgiveness causes some people, maybe even some of you today, to start wondering, I don't know about this. And you start having flutters in your heart and a a pit in your stomach because you've been wounded very, very deeply. And those things are, are a challenge to you. They're very hard for you. And yet, as we study the word of God and as we see what the Bible says week in and week out, there is always hope when we do things God's way. When we look at the scriptures and we say, Lord, I I need your help, I need your grace to do this, the Bible says that there's always strength and there's always hope. And so as we get into our passage this morning, it, it really is on Colossians 3, 12 through 14, focusing on this idea of forgiveness, this truth of forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? The topic of forgiveness is, is such that when, <laughs> when you're preparing to preach on it or teach on it, there's this whole segment of stories and, and powerful dramatic testimonies about it that, that actually I'm going to resist today. My goal is not to make you weep and say, oh, I need to forgive because this other person did so in a dramatic circumstance. Believe me, I've got stories that I've found or cataloged that could show you what forgiveness is. But I simply want to show you from the Bible what biblical forgiveness is all about. And that really starts with understanding what forgiveness is not. Because this is a concept that our world talks a lot about. Oh, you need to forgive. We need to forgive. We need to forgive. That's true. But forgiveness is not a few things. Forgiveness is not a feeling primarily. Yes, it has a a feeling effect on our hearts. But but feelings come and feelings go. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, the one of the heroines from World War II who hid the Jewish people in her home and then was captured, sent to an internment camp, a concentration camp herself, said, forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Forgiveness can happen regardless of the temperature of the heart. And that actually gives us hope that forgiveness is not a feeling. Because if forgiveness was a feeling, then you couldn't forgive if you didn't feel like it. And for most of us, we wouldn't forgive. I mean, who feels like forgiving someone that's hurt us deeply? Not me. But because it's not a feeling, there's a lot of hope here. Secondly, forgiveness is not forgetting. You say, wait a minute, I thought God doesn't forget, doesn't, I, I thought God forgets our sins. Well, there's a difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. And I'm not just splitting hairs. There's a difference between forgetting your keys and actually remembering something, but choosing not to bring it up. Because God doesn't forget anything. He's all-knowing. He can't forget something. And let's just be honest, our experience is such that if you've been hurt deeply, can you actually forget that? Something may have happened to you decades ago, and you still remember it. And it's not for lack of trying. In Isaiah Chapter 43, verse 25, God promises this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And that's important. He doesn't say, and I can't remember your sins. He says, I will not remember your sins. Forgiveness 
is an active choice to not bring up something against another person, even if you remember it. That means that past wrongs that have been forgiven are not present ammunition. You can't go back and get historical and start launching grenades into someone else's relationship now because of what they did. If you've forgiven it, you've chosen not to remember it. You've chosen not to weaponize it. We'll get to that in a moment. The third thing that forgiveness is not, it's not excusing it. The proverbial phrase, swept under the rug, applies here. Because forgiveness, when defined biblically, is actually the only way that we can call sin what it is and still have a solution for it. Have you ever thought about that? How do we call sin, sometimes deeply wounding sin, how do we call it sin without getting bitter over it? It's actually biblical forgiveness. We don't sweep it aside, we don't minimize it, but we have to think rightly about it. So if forgiveness is not a feeling, it's not forgetting, it's not excusing sin, then what is biblical forgiveness? And Colossians 3, 12 through 14 unpacks it with six points that will lead us eventually to a definition of forgiveness. So we're going to go phrase by phrase here through this verse and come at the conclusion of our time to a definition of what biblical forgiveness is. And before we get into this first one, there are many good resources out there about forgiveness. I read a book by a guy named Chris Bronze, I'll quote him in a minute, called Unpacking Forgiveness. Very good. There's another book by Jay Adams called From Forgiven to Forgiving, also very good. Uh, A friend of mine, Jim Newcomer, wrote a little booklet called Help I Can't Forgive, also incredibly helpful, small little resource that you can get. And I'm going to quote several people. So, yes, there are six points about forgiveness. You're thinking, that's a lot of main points. It's actually not as many as there we could talk about, <laughs> believe it or not. But what I want you to understand today is that forgiveness is something we do because Christ has forgiven us. And the first point that Colossians 3 gives us is found in verse 12. We really discussed this a lot last week, so this point's going to be fairly brief. Forgiveness, first of all, is the expression of Christ-like character. Look back at verse 12 with me. Paul writes, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, like clothing, right? That's a word for clothing. Put on, dress yourself in certain kinds of clothes. And what is our spiritual clothing? Our spiritual clothing is tender mercies or compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And each of these qualities are the things that Jesus himself dresses in. We are to become Christ-like in what we put on. Well, how do we display these things? How do I show other people that I'm kind and humble and patient, for example? Verse 13, by bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Forgiveness is the expression of Christ-like character. So to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like, we forgive. The reverse is true, that if we refuse to forgive, we are unlike Christ. Doesn't mean it's not easy. Doesn't mean that that all of a sudden things are just going to get better. Forgiveness is Christ-like. We forgive even as Christ has forgiven us. So in in a way, forgiveness is the litmus test of these other qualities. How do you know how compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient you are? Well, how quickly do you bear with one another and forgive one another? Do you, do you bear with and forgive at all? You cannot be Christ-like without forgiveness. Second, I told you the first one would be quick. 
Second, forgiveness is a gracious commitment. The beginning of verse 13 opens with these two actions of bearing and forgiving. And and they're really forceful to us. They're commands. These are not options for us, as we'll see in a moment. But they're both full of grace. They're grace-filled commitments that help us to handle hurts. The first thing that we have to do is is understand what the word bear means, to bear with. And the way I've categorized it is covering offenses in love, bearing. The word bear means to tolerate with kindness or to put up with in love. Now, it's those little prepositional phrases that make all the difference. Because we can tolerate other people, we can grit our teeth and, oh, I'm going to just, I don't like that person, but I'm just going to smile and nod and keep moving. That's, that's not this action. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, bearing with one another, enduring all things. True love, biblical love like Christ, covers and bears with, tolerates one another in kindness. And this has incredible value in a church of diverse people, right? My guess is you don't have 250 best friends here. You may have a couple or a few, but my guess also is There may be a couple people here that rub you the wrong way. The way I like to think about the church is a family. That's a biblical analogy. But if you start thinking about like a large family gathering, maybe a a family reunion, there are some interesting characters that show up at family reunions, right? There's There's some odd uncles. There's some quirky great aunts. There's some rascally children. We're a family. There are gonna be people that may not jive with you, that may not hit it off with you. But when other believers rub you the wrong way, what's your responsibility toward them? Do you, do you change churches and just say, well, I, I can't stand that one person, so I'm leaving? I hope not. Well, our, our auditorium's really big. Maybe you just switch sides of the auditorium. I'm gonna go sit over here with these people or with those people. They don't rub me the wrong way. Well, what happens in couple years, if they start rubbing you the wrong way, do you switch back at that point? How do you deal with people who are maybe not as easy to love? The Bible says that we bear with one another. And as it applies to the realm of forgiveness, one specific application of bearing with one another is covering offenses in love. First Peter 4, 8 says this, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of of sins. Now, covering does not mean like cover up like a conspiracy, hush, hush, like nothing to see here, keep moving. That's, that's not biblical covering up. Covering up means that in love, we believe the best about the other person. An offense or an odd day for them is chalked up to, well, it's a bad day, I can overlook that. The issue that is at hand doesn't affect your relationship with them. And so you just dismiss it, set it aside. You give them the benefit of the doubt. And we need to practice this a lot. We have to practice this in marriage. Or if you're at a roommate in college, you're gonna have to practice this a lot in college. Because there's friction that happens when people dwell together tightly, but unity doesn't happen unless we're bearing with one another. However, there does come points in time where offenses are so difficult or affect us so much that we can't just cover. We have to seek reconciliation. And that's where forgiveness comes into play. Forgiveness is a gracious commitment to pardon offenses in mercy. 
to pardon an offense in mercy. There are two primary words for forgiveness in the Bible. So we'll do a little Greek lesson here, okay? Don't worry, I won't give you the Greek spelling, all right? And all of you are looking at me like, yeah, you could just skip the Greek totally. There are two words. One means to let go, to release, or to remit. That's aphiomi. And it describes a debt being paid or canceled. In Ephesians 1.7, this word is used. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So the first word means to let go, to release, to wipe away a debt. The second word for forgiveness is found in this passage. And it's the verb form of the word grace. If we could make the word grace a verb, it would be like gracing or graced us. Forgiveness is an act of grace freely offered, often not deserved. A person is is pardoning another from all wrongdoing. Why? Because they're extending grace to, to that other person. And both of these words imply that a legitimate debt has been created. Because when there's an offense against someone else, when someone else sins against you, there's a relational debt that's, that's been incurred. And so that debt uh, uh, monetary illustration is really helpful. Someone owes you something because of their sin toward you. So there's one of two things that you can do. You can either demand that they pay that debt or you can release them from it. And demanding that they pay it is very tricky because how are they supposed to pay a relational debt? Do you just sin against them in the same way? Do you always hold it over them that, that they owe you something? The only biblical thing to do is to let go of that debt, to forgive them. Now, we're not talking about just offenses or misunderstandings that are maybe uh, just from miscommunication. We're talking about sins. Someone said something in slander against you. Someone was rude to you and intentionally so. There's sins that we're talking about here. And sin has to be dealt with God's way. So a debt that's incurred against us is very difficult to let go. I don't think I need to ask you what debts people have incurred against you. In your mind, as you're thinking through who has sinned against me, hopefully the list is not too long, but if you live any length of time, there are people that have sinned against you. It's going to happen. Unfortunately, that's part of a broken world. What the Bible calls us to do is to release that other person of the debt that they owe you, not because they deserve it, but as an act of grace. And so what you're doing is you're, you're, in, you're taking that debt and you're transferring it to God and saying, Lord, I'm gonna release them. You can be in charge of how you decide to make things right with them. And this is the key. Instead of demanding justice on our own terms, we have to entrust to God the responsibility of justice. Let's go down this road for a moment, this idea of entrusting God with justice, because that's, that's the crux of the issue. When we don't forgive, we're saying, I'm better at making things right than God is. When an unbeliever sins against us, it's easy to think about how, how God will perform justice, right? There are sins that our world does against the unborn and murdering our children. It's easy to get angry over that righteously and say, God's going to judge that, and he will. But, but really, as Christians, when we think about hell, 
and the nature of eternal punishment and damnation, we, we actually, instead of wishing people there, we start praying that God would spare them and that they would come to repentance. But what about when believers hurt you? In fact, most of the hurts in my life have come because other believers, other people who I'm going to share heaven with have hurt me. So what do you do in that circumstance? How does God enact justice on someone who will not face condemnation? And there are a few things that that I think we can consider, and I'm sure there are more answers to this. But first, we have to remember that, that God is their father. He is the one who will chasten them, just like God is your father if you're a believer, and he will chasten you. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 talks about he chastens those whom he loves. His chastening is not a sign of his wrath and condemnation. It's a sign that he cares about his children. He is the one that is able to correct one child's behavior against another. Now, as you know, uh, our two older boys are close in age. They're 17 months apart. So they do much of the day together. They play together, they have fun together, and they fight together, as can be expected. And when one of them has a grievance against the other, I don't really trust my six-year-old or my eight-year-old with, with responding rightly with justice. I want to reserve the right to work justly. So when one of them is hurt by the other, yeah, maybe they can work through it, but if it's a legitimate issue, what do I tell them? Come to mom, come to dad. We will handle it. And sometimes what God is saying in his word is when another of your brothers or sisters offends you, come to me with it. I will handle it. The second thing that we can remember about when another believer sins against us is that every one of us will stand before Jesus at the Bema seat. 2 Corinthians 5.12 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So every believer, you and I, will face Jesus' correction and reward for what we do in this life. This is not a judgment of condemnation. Our eternal security is not at stake. But there is a reward or a correction that takes place. You say, how in the world does that work? I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. All I know is the Bible says there will be a reckoning and that Jesus is the one to do it. And that brings me to the third thing that, that helps us when another believer sins against us. Third, forgiveness is an expression of faith. Even if we don't know how Jesus will make things right, we can trust that the judge of all the earth will do justly. That the hurts that you've experienced at the hands of other believers, God will make right. He will do it. How? I don't know. I'm not Jesus. That burden is not left to me. But the Bible says that our God is just. He never makes a mistake. And so you can trust him to do what is right. And forgiveness is all about entrusting to God the situation, because actually, the only sin, uh, the only situation in which justice is served, is when it's out of your court and into His. We are too limited in our perspective to rightly enforce justice. Now, forgiveness also helps us to see sin correctly and clearly. You remember what David said in Psalm fifty-one, four. 
When, let's remind ourselves of the situation. David has committed adultery, conceived a child, murdered the woman's husband. And he gets into this psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, forgiveness views sin as ultimately against God. And you and I may be victims of other people's sin, but their sin breaks God's law. It's not our law that they broke. They're not standing condemned in our court of justice. They're actually breaking God's law. So when you hold on to the hurt, this may be hard to hear, when you hold on to the hurt, what you're actually saying is that you can judge the situation better than God. That God can step aside, you'll take the robes of justice and preside over the court of this situation. And I I don't think any Christian in their right mind would say those words. No one would be so foolish to stand up and say, well, of course I know better than God. But essentially, refusing to forgive is a manifestation of pride that we know better than God. And yet, forgiveness is costly, isn't it? It's hard. It's really hard. It's a costly choice to release another person from a debt. So why would we forgive? Why would we forgive? The world has what's called a therapeutic view of forgiveness. Forgiveness is primarily for you to feel better about yourself so that the poison doesn't hurt you. And that is true. But is that the primary motive for biblical forgiveness? You're probably thinking, well, if you're pointing that out as wrong, then no, it can't be right. Biblical forgiveness is not self-centered. It's not about me. It's actually about reconciling with the other person. You see, the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. And verse 13 shows us this. Forgiveness is God's ordained method for reconciling relational grievances. Now that's a mouthful. But how in the world are we supposed to do this? Well, verse 13 continues, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another. Now a complaint is not a petty thing. I didn't like what you were wearing today, so you, you, know, you need to be forgiven. It, it, that, that's not it. We're not cheapening forgiveness. A a complaint here means a grievance, an offense legitimately because it was caused by sin. We're not talking about preferences or disagreements about where to go with dinner, where to go for dinner. We're talking about sin issues here. And so the Bible assumes that there will be conflict, right? It doesn't say, whoa, if some of you are so unspiritual as to ever have a relational issue. It says, if you have a complaint against another, it's assuming that sinful people trying to dwell together in unity will have grievances. So forgiveness is God's tool to navigate this conflict. And when we try to resolve offenses in some other way, we're in, a sense, we're in essence telling God our way is better than his. Forgiveness may be hard, but it's necessary for unity. This is what Jay Adams writes. Forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian home and church running smoothly. In a world where even those who have been declared perfect in Christ sin, there is much to forgive. Christians who must work together closely find themselves denting each other's fenders, now and then taking out a taillight or two. 
and at times even having head-on collisions. Under such circumstances, forgiveness is what keeps things from breaking down completely. And this connects to our vision as we, start to re- as we seek to restart our church's life cycle. Well, we're not a new church that's been planted in the last two years. We don't have a history of relationships. Some of you have been with us for, for decades. And if we're going to restart our church's life cycle, we have to follow Jay Adams' advice. That we can't let old wounds fester. We have to, to put the healing balm of, of forgiveness on the relational challenges and issues that come up. So forgiveness is God's ordained method for dealing with conflict. And even though it's difficult, it's what really leads to unity. And, and, and it's so essential for us. And yet again, I, I empathize. It's so hard. I've struggled with it. It's hard. Now, I, I want to make a clarification here at this point. There are some Christians out there who teach us that we need to forgive God. If you just Google forgiving God, there's, there's movies and books and articles about you need to forgive God, you need to forgive God. Well, I've placed this clarification under this point, number three, for a reason. Because forgiveness is God's ordained method for reconciling when there is sin. Do we ever need to forgive God? If you say, yes, we need to forgive God, what are you actually saying about God? That he sinned. That he made a mistake and owes it to me to humble himself and repent. Whew. Uh, that's, that's unbiblical. Because to imply that God needs to be forgiven would imply that he sinned or to claim it outright. So what do we do when we're upset with God? Because in, in life there are sometimes things that, that hurt us. Some things that God allows into our lives that we don't like and we respond with anger at that. I've had those recently. How do, how do we work with that? Well, first of all, forgiving him isn't right. We're not his judge. Our anger at God, let's diagnose it, our anger at God is actually because God didn't do what I wanted him to do. He failed me in some way. And when I frame it that way, you're thinking, ooh, that's, that's almost blasphemous. Exactly. It's a pride problem that we're upset at God because he hasn't measured up to my expectations or he's gone outside of my sphere of control and done something that I haven't permitted. So if, if you're struggling with anger at God, it's actually you that needs to repent. God is in the right. He is sovereign, but we're not gonna use his sovereignty like a club to beat you with. He's always good and he cares. And when you are angry at God, over the difficult things he sends or permits in your life, you are really resisting him. And so I would encourage you to recognize that he's still God and he's still good. And that your response to difficult circumstances is not anger and resentment at God, it's, it's submission to God. It's to bow on your face and to submit to his sovereign choice. And so if you're struggling with that, I, I would encourage you to, to humble yourself confess that sin and forsake it. God always gives mercy to those who confess and forsake. So forgiveness is God's method for dealing with sin. The fourth point about forgiveness is really the key that separates biblical forgiveness from everything else. And it's found in verse 13. Paul says, forgiving one another, if anyone has complained against another, even as Christ 
forgave you. Number four, forgiveness is patterned on God's forgiveness of you. And this is both the standard of our forgiveness and the motive of our forgiveness. Let's, let's think about those one at a time. The standard of our forgiveness. So we forgive in the same way that God forgave us. We forgive in the same way that God forgave us. Well, at salvation, God personally forgives you. It's a personal transaction between the offended and the offender. What does God's forgiveness look like? I mentioned Chris Braun's book earlier. Here's what he says. God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. This is really what the gospel is all about in a nutshell. In fact, the word forgive shows up in the book of Colossians earlier in chapter 2, verse 13. If you're one that likes to make connections in your Bible, you can circle the word forgiveness in chapter 3, verse 13, and write 2.13. should be easy to remember. They're both verse 13. Here's what it says. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, God's forgiveness of us is incredible. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that, that we weren't just spiritually dead, we were dead because we had offended God. We had sinned against him. A trespass is to go beyond a boundary, to stray off the road. God gave us his word. We said no to it. We are dead in our sins. We've offended him. And yet, because he loves us, he sent Jesus to earth, who lived perfectly, died on the cross, and shed his blood. And, and this verse is incredible because it shows us what was really going on at the cross. It says that he's made us alive upon our reception of Jesus, but he wiped out the handwriting of requirements. That, that was a term that was used for the record of debt. If you have a mortgage on your home, that's a decent analogy for it. And what Jesus accomplished was taking that record of sins that, that are accumulated against you, and God took it with one hand and with the other nailed it to his cross and said, it's finished. And that record of debt that stood against us, that was contrary to us, is taken away, never to return. God doesn't forgive people and then set them in purgatory or the penalty box. He forgives them, and then Ephesians 2 says, they are then seated at the table with Christ. They become members of the family. That's the gospel. And if you've never received the gospel, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, you can't forgive biblically because you can't pass on to others what you've never received for yourself. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, is giving to others what God has already extended to you. And if you don't possess that, you can't share it with others. So the solution is not to walk out and say, well, I guess I need to try a different church. The solution is actually to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior so that you can experience the forgiveness of God and then be liberated to forgive others. 
that's why God's forgiveness of us is the standard of our forgiveness of other people. We forgive in the same way that God forgives us. So what does that mean? That means that forgiveness is aimed at reconciliation. God doesn't forgive people, as I mentioned just a minute ago, to be distant from them. When he forgives a sinner, Hebrews 10 says, they're brought near through the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that you don't have to wait a period of seven years as kind of like a trial period where where God saves you, but you only have limited features? You haven't upgraded to the full subscription yet? We get full access immediately when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some people say, I forgive you, but I could never love you again. Or I forgive you, but this or that. Well, forgiveness, as we'll see in a moment, doesn't mean that all consequences go away. But forgiveness does mean that we're aiming for unity and reconciliation. For forgiveness aims for closeness. Second, forgiveness is a conditional transaction based on repentance. And you say, wait a minute, that's too far for me. But let's think about this, okay? This may be controversial to some Christians, but how does God forgive us? Does God just say anyone who's in the world is saved? No, that's called universalism. The Bible is very clear that to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, there are two conditions. The apostles in the early church preached repentance and faith, turning away from sin, trusting in Christ as your Savior. When that happens, God pardons a sinner. That's the transaction of forgiveness. Now, we're going to nuance this really closely, so so hang with me. If someone is not repentant, and they've sinned against you, they don't want to listen to you, they don't want to admit what they've done, you can't give them the gift of forgiveness. You can't have a transaction take place between the two of you. And and actually, that frees the believer from feeling like they're living in sin because someone else won't be reconciled to them. How do you forgive, in a very extreme example, and this is what some of these resources talk about, how do you forgive an abuser? someone that's molested children and they're unrepentant and they're in jail and they, they don't have a shred of guilt for it. How do you forgive them? Well, there are two aspects of forgiveness, okay? And that's number three. There are two aspects of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift that's offered graciously between parties. You can't forgive unrepentant people. God doesn't forgive unrepentant people. But, and don't tune out, but Is God always ready to forgive? Does God have a heart that is open toward all people? Is God moving toward us with arms wide open? Yes. And so this is not original to me. Uh, I think it's actually taken from Chris Braun, maybe Jim Newcomer. Forgiveness is a transaction, but we also have a posture of forgiveness, an attitude of forgiveness, or a willingness to forgive. And that is something that you can control. Though God does not automatically forgive non-repentant people or unrepentant people, what is God's heart for everyone? 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If we are going to forgive like Christ, like God, then our heart has to match his heart. That our disposition, our posture is that if someone has offended us and they come to us and they they repent, we will forgive. That we are ready to do it and we've settled that in our hearts. 
Because you can't control the other person, but you can control your attitude toward them. And so in, in our world, it, it's a little cumbersome in every conversation to say, well, do you have a, did you do the transaction of forgiveness or you just have the posture? When we refer to forgiveness, that's really what we're talking about is the willingness to forgive. So are you willing to forgive? That person who's deeply hurt you, are you willing to forgive them? Are you ready because God has forgiven you to forgive? And when you forgive, there's a commitment that's made. Again, frame your forgiveness of someone else in light of your relationship to God. When God forgives you, are you happy that he makes some commitments to you? Are you thrilled in your heart to rise day after day and read the good news of the gospel and be full in your soul with the truth that God will never leave you or forsake you? That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That because of justification, you're at peace with God? God makes some commitments to us out of his grace. We don't deserve them. When we make a commitment to forgive, we make several promises also. In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy writes this. Here are four promises we make when we forgive. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident in my heart. I won't hold it in my heart. I can't forget it, but I'm not going to keep it there. I'm not going to let it percolate. I'm not going to put it on the oven of my mind and let it stew over and over again. Second, I will not bring this incident up again or use it against you. That's the weaponizing. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, okay, everything's fine, but I'm going to put this in my quiver. And six months later, you pull it out and say, now I got you. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness promises third, I will not talk to others about this incident. I won't go and share a prayer request with someone else. Hey, can you just pray for me? I'm just really struggling with so-and-so because they've done this to me. Or someone says, you know, I was, I was sent, uh, you know, something was kind of odd in my interaction with that person. Oh, you too, really? Let me tell you a little bit more about them. Have you done that? Fourth promise, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now that's really hard. Because that leads into this, this fifth item, that forgiveness doesn't mean all the consequences go away. And in this life, forgiveness is complicated. It's not easy. The goal is always reconciliation, but that, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden the consequences go away. Again, does God, when he forgives us, does he remove all of consequences in this life? No, he actually doesn't. Think about Moses entering the promised land. He sinned. He was angry with, the, with God and the people and the rock and, and hit the rock instead of speaking to it. And it, it seems really severe that God said, you won't go into the promised land. Moses repented, but God didn't let him go in. He didn't change the consequence. What about David? I mentioned him a minute ago. His sin with Bathsheba, he repented. Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance where he's sorry, he's broken, he's confessing his sin. And yet the child still died. The child did nothing wrong. The child didn't sin. And that was the consequence. Sometimes in this life, reconciliation is aimed at, but, but not quite possible. The consequences may not go away. And I can't speak to specific situations. I, 
I would encourage you that reconciliation is the goal, but we have to remember that sometimes there are consequences. The danger here, though, is to excuse relational distance by saying, well, that's just a consequence of their actions. They offended me, and I've forgiven them. There's nothing wrong, but I'm going to totally ignore them. Well, I, I don't know if that's right either. These are complicated issues. They're, they're difficult. But I think if we have a, a change of heart toward one another, we will take on God's heart for others. Because even as Christ forgave you, it's not just our standard of forgiveness, it's our motive. And if, if you thought it was convicting already, this is where it gets really bad. God's forgiveness is our motive. If we had time, we would go to Matthew 18 and read about the story of the king who forgave a servant of an unpayable debt and that servant turned around and choked another servant and wouldn't let him pay and, and forced him to pay. That's us when we don't forgive. We've been forgiven an unpayable debt and then we're trying to demand someone else here pay us what they owe. The reason we forgive is because of the forgiveness we've received from God. Because forgiveness is rooted in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of focusing on the offense against you, I would encourage you to have a change of perspective. And this doesn't take place in an instant. It's usually a battle and a struggle that happens over time. To forgive others as Christ forgave you, you have to remember the mercy that you were shown. It's another reason why if you're not a believer, you really can't give forgiveness to others. Because when you think about your relationship to God and you start repenting over the sins in your heart and you think about how God has forgiven you and showed you mercy, it would be hypocritical to say, I can't forgive this other person. Ephesians 4.32, even as God in Christ forgave you, well, that's the last part of the verse. What does the first part say? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted or compassionate, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness then doesn't give others what they deserve or what they're owed. It gives them the same mercy that you've received from God. Seen in this light, we, we really can't help but to forgive and yet sometimes we don't want to forgive. I'll be honest, sometimes I don't want to forgive. It feels good in the flesh to hold on to it. That's why verse 13 continues. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. There's not an option here. You must forgive. If, if the movement of mercy is not enough to motivate you, then at least start by responding in faith to the command. Say, Lord, I know it's your command. I don't feel like it, but I need your help. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And if you need added motivation, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. If we refuse to forgive, God will not forgive us. That's the plain meaning of this text. If we don't forgive, God won't forgive us. If you profess to be a believer and you say, I will not forgive, it's actually scripturally grounded to say, well, there's something very deeply wrong. Am I even a believer here? Because again, if you've received such mercy and refuse to share it with others, then 
What's the true status of your soul? Now, I'm not talking and trying to unsettle people who are struggling to forgive. If you know you should forgive, and, and in your flesh you don't really want to, but you know that it's right to do, and you're, you're kind of wrestling with it, that's a whole different story. But if you just say, no, I'm not forgiving, no problem, they hurt me, you ought to consider your heart and consider the mercy that you've received or profess to receive. Let's think for a moment about what happens when you don't forgive. Because the opposite of forgiveness is holding something in your heart. It's holding on to the hurt. We call that resentment and bitterness. Bitterness nurses the hurt and stews over the injustice. It's like this this 24-7 news relay that just goes over and over and over, replaying things in your mind. And then it'll lead to other sins when you're stewing over the injustice. It leads to anger and jealousy and discontentment and complaining and ingratitude. It's not a real friendly picture. (laughs) Bitter people are hypersensitive to justice. But the irony is they have a skewed perspective of justice. They minimize their sin while overreacting to other people's sins. And they have kind of this bloodlust where they enjoy the hurts of others. Instead of seeing others succeed, instead of wishing that that they would turn in their hearts to, to, to repent before God, they kind of wish God would knock them off. Lord, I kind of wish you would let that person pay. Again, go back to your relationship with God. How can you wish that God would pour out his wrath on someone while you're sitting at the table with Christ? Bitter people actually end up destroying many relationships because the poison in one's heart can't be contained. It just spills out. And ultimately, as I've mentioned a couple times, bitter people are hypocritical. It's a defiling sin. That's why Hebrews 12, 15 says bitterness is like a root. It invades a heart and then defiles entire communities. So if that's your struggle today, God gives grace for that. Confess it, forsake it, ask him to pull out the root of bitterness and replace it with the fruit of of joy and peace and love. Because ultimately, biblical forgiveness is energized by love. Verse 14 But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The only way to resist bitterness and to extend forgiveness is through love. We've already seen that forgiveness is motivated by God's forgiveness of us. That's the first great commandment, right? To love God with all of our heart because he loved us first. The second commandment is like unto it. We don't just love God, we actually love others. And we express our love to others by forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. You're probably familiar with that. And one of the terms uh, in verse 5 says, think no evil. That's one evidence of love. And to think no evil is actually a mathematics term. It means to calculate or to keep a record of. And so what the Bible is telling us, commanding us to do even, is that biblical love doesn't keep a record, doesn't keep track of the wrongs of other people. Instead, it bears with them, it forgives, it covers, and it endures all things. Forgiveness is energized by love because love refuses to make a mental list of wrongs and store them up. So what is biblical forgiveness? What is biblical forgiveness? If we put all six of these things together, here's what biblical forgiveness is. It's a Christ-like commitment something that we do because we're trying to be like Christ. And it's a commitment. There are promises that are being made. 
patterned on God's forgiveness. And that's the secret to me. If you really want to forgive, you have to remember the mercy of God to you. It's a Christ-like commitment patterned on God's forgiveness to love another person, because that's really what you're doing, by graciously releasing them from the relational debt. And, And you can be honest, it is a debt. They have sinned against you, they have offended you, but you are not choosing to press charges in the court of justice. You're choosing to graciously release them. They don't owe you a dime anymore. And the goal of this is reconciliation. The goal of this is unity. Though in a broken world, some consequences do remain. That's biblical forgiveness. And as we consider our hearts and our lives, how, how, do, you, how do you live that out? Who do you need to forgive? There are probably deep hurts in your life. If you don't have deep hurts or if you've already forgiven and worked through that, praise the Lord. (laughs) There will probably be more down the road, so you're going to need this. How can you do this? How can you practice this? Well, no situation is like another. Everything is is slightly unique. These situations are complicated. And if you need help working through this, invite a mature Christian to help you. Don't gossip about it, but come to someone and say, can I trust you with a confidential situation to help me work through the offense that was caused? And that person may come back to you and say, you know what, you need to let that go. That person may say, you, you, you probably need to reach out and try to restore that relationship. That may be awkward and uncomfortable. As I prayed for us this week as our church, I prayed not only that God would minister this healing balm of forgiveness, I've also prayed that that God would give us the courage to obey. So how do you forgive? Let me give you a couple points, and then we'll be done. Picture someone you are not reconciled to. How do you practice biblical forgiveness? First, you repent with any bitterness and resentment in your heart. You drain the root of that sin by gazing at the cross and remembering the gospel. Second, you're reframing your grievances in light of God's mercy to you. The offense is primarily against God. It's a lot easier to let go if you remember that it's ultimately against God and his word. If God is ready to forgive them, then you should be and can be also. And remember, the the offense against you is very small. It's minuscule compared to your offenses against God. So reframe the situation. Third, ask God to, to help you have a posture of forgiveness. This is a spiritual battle. This is not easy. And it may take months or even years to maintain this attitude, this posture in your heart. But keep giving it to the Lord. You may not feel like forgiving, but he can change your heart. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that in the new covenant of Christ's blood, we have a new heart because the spirit of God is in us. And finally, prayerfully choose to practice forgiveness. And you can cover it in love or you can confront for reconciliation with grace. If the relationship is broken or damaged, if the sin affects people beyond you, or if the other person's in spiritual danger, you probably need to go to them and, and try to be reconciled to them and say, hey, th- this is an issue that's come up and it's, it's offended me and I want to forgive, but, but you need to, to know that this is going on. If you choose to cover something in love, then the matter is as good as gone. You will follow through in the promises of not holding it against that person. But if you go to the other person, which is necessary in life, 
You have to go in the right way. Jesus says, remove the log in your own eye before you pluck the speck out of another's. Go in humility, which means you're going to go asking questions, ready to listen. And there may be an explanation that you weren't thinking about, that you didn't know about. Don't just go ready to be right. Seek reconciliation above all. And if the person refuses to listen, the situation has already been given to God. So let him deal with it. Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And, and it may not be possible to be peaceable with that other person if they won't respond. And so you can trust that to the Lord, give that to God, continue to have a forgiving spirit toward them. And if down the road they come back to you, you're ready to forgive. And it's immediate. Oh, yes, of course I forgive you. Because you have a pity and a compassion for them. So let's conclude. Who do you need to forgive? Who has been running through your thoughts and your mind over and over again this hour? That's the person that you need to prayerfully surrender to the Lord. And it may be that the offense needs to be covered and you need to stop stewing on it and holding on to it. And instead you give it to God, you put it in his court of justice and you say, I'm I'm walking away from it, Lord, give me grace. It may be that you actually have to go to that other person and say, you know, I've been holding this against you and, and, and please forgive me of that, but I, I also need to ask you and tell you that you've offended me. Now, if, if someone else doesn't know that they've offended you, that's probably a good candidate to cover in love, unless it's causing spiritual danger elsewhere. It's always a little awkward when someone walks up to you and says, you know, I've been really just ticked at you for six months. Oh, okay. Would you forgive me? Uh, sure. What, what for? That's not important. Okay. But if there's been a breach of that relationship, the Bible actually says that both the offender and the offendee should be on their way to one another. And so let's ask the Lord for grace today. This is hard. It's not easy. But God always gives us the grace through our relationship with Christ to do what he's called us to do. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have forgiven us so much. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing for me to preach on forgiveness knowing my own struggles. And, and yet your mercy is extended to all of us. With those that are really wrestling, Lord, that have experienced deep hurts, that are not sure what their next step is, I pray that they would courageously choose to obey, to follow Christ, even though they don't know necessarily what the next steps may be. And that our our church, our community, as we restart our life cycle here, would have a spirit of, of, of just kindness as we bear with one another and forgive one another. And we pray that you would give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.